Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. To our teaching today. I'm Ken Bear, one of the pastors at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. Today, we finish the discussion on this third parable in the 15th chapter of Luke. This is the parable of the lost son, also known as the parable of the prodigal son. As you recall, we said that there were three parables in the 15th chapter of Luke. The first was the parable of the lost sheep, then we had the parable of the lost coin, and today we end up finishing this parable of the prodigal son. Uh, the reason we take our time going through these parables and take our time at the very beginning is we want to make sure that we just don't jump in and start reading the text without fully embracing the, the context. And the context, again, this is the third in a series of three parables. We want to make sure that we understand exactly why Jesus is telling these. All three of these parables are similar in the way that they show us God's attitude towards the, the lost. The third parable is likely the one that we can relate to the most because of the character development. Last week we read the sad story of the younger son who decided that he didn't want to honor his father, his family, or his heritage. And he asked for his share of the inheritance prematurely. Meaning that normally, and almost without exception, an inheritance is given after the father dies. It passes from father to son, and we were surprised that the father actually agreed to this arrangement. The father agreed and divided his estate so that the younger could take some of the money and ran. And that's exactly what he did. He he misused, he squandered his money on himself, on sinful activities, and eventually he, he spent it all. And of course at that very time a famine came on the scene and the young prodigal son hit, hit bottom, uh, feeding the pigs and wishing the pigs would share their meal with him. So the Bible says that this younger son, this prodigal, came to his senses. And I want to begin today where we left off reading at this point in the journey of the prodigal son. So we'll begin in the 15th chapter of Luke, in, uh, beginning in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran to him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. 
Now, the story actually divides itself into three parts, and they all kind of overlap. The first part is about the younger son. The second part is about the father. And this is the part that we just read through. And there's a third part still to come about the older son. It's, it's a dramatic story, and, it, and it's fun to read, and it changes the tone as we get through it. Each of these parts, as I said, overlap. When we're looking at the younger son, it overlaps to the father. And then we'll see today that the father's part will overlap to the older son as well. So we're going to take this verse by verse and let the Lord speak to us about the kingdom of God. The beginning of this parable is about this horrible decision that the young man made. And we said that it was shameless that the younger son would ask his father for his inheritance like this. And we said in actuality, the younger son was say, this younger son was saying, Father, I wish you were dead. And in reality, in Israel, even to this day, when there's this kind of a split, when there's this kind of a transgression, this type of division within a family, it would often lead to someone saying, this son of mine is, is dead. This happens to this day, to those Jewish sons and daughters that are bold enough to embrace Christianity, to understand that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And whether they consider themselves to be Christians or completed Jews, which is just another way of saying that they understand who Jesus is, when this happens, it may cause such a division in the family, such a, such a hurt for the parents, that the mother or father or both would say, that child of mine, that daughter or son of mine is, is dead. So for the prodigal son, his transgressions wasn't anywhere near as noble as making a decision to follow Jesus. No, his transgression was just self-centered hedonism. When the money ran out, his friends ran out on him, and he decided to return home. So now at this point, the father enters the story. The father re-enters in the mind of the son. So we read in verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my fathers, stop there just long enough, to understand that his father comes to, to mind. I'm sure he had done everything he could to make sure that he kept his father out of his mind, to, to forget what his father had provided for him so that he could just enjoy himself with very sinful living. It isn't that he comes to his senses, but the son remembers. He remembers his father. There's no love yet there yet. It's just a, a memory, but he reaches bottom and remembers. But this is exactly where repentance can begin. It begins with an accurate assessment of your condition. It, it begins with a recollection of the love of God in providing friends and family and health and security, a recollection of the love that had been experienced. The thing that changed was his rebellion, nothing that his father had done. It begins to sink in, not only in his situation, but in his stinking situation. You like that? It's about the pigs. I mean, he's living with the pigs, so it's a stinking situation. And so he thinks about his father and how many of his father's hired servants have more than enough bread while he's dying of hunger. Now, that actually says a lot about the father. Think about it. This is where we learn, to, we learn a little bit about the father. Let me tell you a little bit about what it was like to be a hired man in Israel at the time. A hired man was a, a day laborer. 
We have day laborers today. Perhaps you've seen them or maybe you've seen stories about them or movies about them. Uh, someone comes along in a pickup truck and a group of men typically are, are waiting around and hope that the pickup truck will slow down, stop, offer them a job for the day and a few of the laborers will jump on the truck and they'll be taken to where they need to go for the day and then the truck will return at the end of the day, bring them back to where it picked them up and they'll be paid. These hired men are at the, at the lowest level, uh, but they're working. Working keeps them fed. These are the poor who are willing to work and who need, a, who need to work. And everyone who was poor in these days, these biblical days, had to, had to work. There was, there was really no welfare program. Uh, they were, for the most part in Israel, they were farmhands. Relatively unskilled, but sometimes experienced. Some of them may have developed a skilled craft. These were the lucky ones because they could be taken on permanently uh, using the skill that they had acquired. And this prodigal son remembers something about these men that worked for his father also. He says, these hired servants had bread enough to spare. He remembers that his father paid them more than enough. This is to say he remembered that the hired men had more than enough bread, which is to say that his father was actually what? Generous. He remembered that his father gave them more than they generally needed to survive. His father was a good man. His father was kind. The father loved his sons and took care of his workers. His father was generous. You know, he likely knew it but hadn't really processed it well enough to understand his relationship to his, his father. At one time, he was, he was home. He was the son, not a, not a hired servant at all. And he had not appreciated this relationship that he had with his father, who was generous, loving, kind. He was a good, good father. By going back home, he's taking a risk, but he's at the bottom. He has no choice. In many other families, likely in the village he lived in, there was really no opportunity for this type of a prodigal son to return. To go back ashamed, embarrassed, dishonored, and disherited would be too great a risk for most families. But this young man, this prodigal son, knows his father. And he knows his father is different. His father is better than that. His father is not vengeful. He knows that his father is merciful and generous. It could have been that in his father's home, these hired servants were actually cared for even better. You know, in some cases, when families hired servants, they provided them room and board as well. These were indentured servants. They, they worked to, keep, to, to uh, pay off a debt, or they voluntarily became an indentured servant in order to be taken care of. They would have enough for food, for lodging, maybe some pocket change to be able to do some other things. The hired men actually were lower than that. These, there were no unions at the time, no benefits, no stability. If they worked, they were paid, but if they weren't able to work, they weren't paid. If they were paid for the day, they had enough money to be able to get some food to eat. If they didn't work, they didn't eat. But either way, either as a family servant that got to live on the premises or just as a hired hand, the prodigal son was ready to go home. He's all alone. He's broke. He's famished. Remember, there's a famine going on in the land, and his money is completely gone. Recognizing the reality of his situation, in the beginning of repentance, he's broken. 
and he decides to return to his father. No, repentance requires not only deciding to change your mind, to change the direction of your life, but it also requires some momentum. It requires an action step. True repentance here is faith in the Father. He trusts his Father's compassion, his generosity, and his mercy. Repentance is linked to faith. Did you know that? Always. He knows the kind of man his father is, and in spite of the horrible way that he blasphemed his father, dishonored his father, shamed his father, the horrible way that he treated his father and his family, the terrible way that he lived his life since taking his inheritance, coming to the very bottom, he knows that his father is forgiving. And he penitently trusts to go back and receive forgiveness. Do whatever work he needs to do to make restitution and to reconcile. So he continues his journey. In verse 18 it says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. At this point, remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees are listening in. This, this parable is being told because the Pharisees and the scribes had, had, had said something. Can you imagine what they're thinking? They're thinking, well, that's good. He's come to his senses. He'll be lucky if his father even takes him back. And all he deserves is possibly be treated as one of the hired hands. But I want you to notice something. Verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father. Well, we said that the true meaning of repentance is found in the Greek word for repentance, which is metanoia, two Greek words, the first one meaning to change, and then noia is the mind, to change your mind or change your thought process. However, after you change your mind, action is required, and that's exactly what this young man is doing. The prodigal son arose, he picked himself off, got out of the mud with the pigs, he set his face towards home, and he began to walk. It was likely a good distance because he was no longer in Judah. He was no longer in Israel. He probably was, he was with the Gentiles, possibly in Samaria. Now this is true of every sinner that comes back to God. It may begin with a, a thought. You know, what you're doing is obviously wrong. The thrill is gone and I've become no good to anyone, including myself. That's the first step. And, but we need to see some action. The man arises, he begins to, to walk back towards his father. Now, now realize, he's on this journey going back home, but he doesn't expect to be a son again. At least that's his view. That son died, he's now ready to go and tell his father, he begins to rehearse it, okay? Have you ever done that? Have you ever rehearsed what you were going to say before you had the opportunity to truly say it? He's rehearsing. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just take, make me a hired man. Just, just give me a job. Over and over as he's walking back, he's rehearsing this. He says he feels he has no rights. He'll say, I have no privileges. I, I lay no claim. I don't ever expect for you to receive me. Let's go back to the Pharisees and the scribes that were likely listening. You know, they didn't like the story at the beginning because dishonoring the fa father would have been horrible for them asking for an inheritance that was respectful. They were horrified when the young man left, converted everything to cash, and took off on this, this sinful living. And then Jesus added the extra dimension that this young Jewish boy is living with the uh, pigs who are considered unclean. The scribes and the Pharisees are horrified. But now, 
most likely the scribes and these, these, these uh, Pharisees are getting back into the story. Jesus is telling them something that they can relate to. They probably like the idea that the prodigal had come to his senses. They like the idea that he was coming back home. The father was going to have to deal with him and probably deal with him harshly. That's how fathers are supposed to deal with wayward sons. So we continue. Verse 20. So he got up, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What? <laughs> Again, we're going to have to read between the lines to think about what the Pharisees might be thinking at this time. You know, if they were listening and they were listening to the father treating his wayward son this way, with compassion, caring, whatever, the response of the father is almost as shameful as the disgrace that the son brought to the family. Fathers are not supposed to act like that. They're supposed to be stern, stubborn, vengeful. But what did the Pharisees expect? Well, they expected the father would refuse to meet him. It would be much more appropriate for the father to make him sit outside by the town, by the gates of the town, and sit in public view for a, a few days, maybe a few weeks, just so that people could see him and give him their scorn. Perhaps the best that could be expected is that the father would ensure that his prodigal son be taken somewhere provided for somehow, but after he had dishonored his father, he was no longer a son. We can speculate what these Pharisees and scribes were thinking because we know that's what the rabbis thought. All the rabbis taught that repentance was work that a man does to earn God's favor when he feels really sorry for his sin. That's what repentance was. You feel sorry for your sin, you want to be restored by God, so you do penance. And by that work of penance, you then gain favor and are possibly restored. Everyone knew that. That's, that's the way it was done. Uh, that's the word penance. What is penance? Well, penance is today, it is a, it's still there. It's a, it's a religious word. It has to do with voluntary or involuntary, self-imposed punishment for a sinful act or, or wrongdoing. It, it's reparations for sin. But you see, that's not what happened. Our text says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, let's take this verse apart a little bit. While he was still a long way off, he hadn't re reached yet the village or his, his father's property. Uh, down some dusty road out of town a long way off, but his father sees him. Which is an indication that what? His father is, is looking for him. His father is looking for the lost son. If you recall, this chapter in the Gospel of Luke had three parables. We say that they were all similar. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost son. And all three, the person doing the searching, looking for, doing the looking, is not that which is lost, but it was the shepherd that was looking for the lost sheep. It was the woman looking for the lost coin. And now we see the father looking for his lost son. So why is he looking? Well, his, his son was lost. Regardless of what the boy did doesn't change the fact that this prodigal son is still the son. The Pharisees and the scribes, likely the village elders, would have expected him to disown him, to say, my son is dead, but the father didn't do that. 
This is what was expected, but the father is a loving father. He wants his son back home. He wants to protect him from the shame. He wants to protect him from the scorn, the abuse, the slander. His father is actually willing to take on the shame himself. He's willing to have the people say, what is this man doing? This man who was dishonored now dishonors himself by embracing this, this wretched son of his. But he wants to protect his son from the scorn, the slander, the taunting that would be expected, which was just, it was, it was part of the culture. It was, it was expected. So listen to what the father does in verse 20. The father saw him and had compassion, ran and fell on his neck, and he kissed him. You know, I, I believe we can understand this. A father loving his son, a father loving his son that had been gone maybe for a year or more, he never forgot the son that he loved, even when he was away. The father loves his son passionately. The Bible says that he fell on his neck and kissed him. You know, I love it how some families can have that kind of affection for each other. You know, some families can't. Other families seem to. It, it, sometimes it's, it's just something you grow up with. Some, some families have that ability for the father to, to embrace the children. I, I think that's, that's good. As a pastor, I can tell you that those that do not have a good relationship, an affection relationship, particularly with their father, they often have difficulty understanding how God is a, a good, good father. If a person has been abused by their father, it's, it's a hurt that, that needs to, to heal. God can heal any hurt, but when it comes to the hurt between a father and a son, that, that some, can sometimes take a, a little bit of work. But it says that the father kissed him. He kissed him repeatedly. And now we know that the father has been suffering, maybe silently, for all the time that the son was gone. He's been suffering quietly, loving the boy while he was gone, and now that quiet, silent, suffering love becomes a public demonstration of the father's love for his son. You can see him running through the street, bringing shame on himself to embrace the son and spare him the shame. Let's continue. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this is my son that was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. You know, the, the son had carefully rehearsed exactly what he was going to say. His father was embracing him, holding him, kissing him, certainly something he had not expected. However, because he had rehearsed it, he was able to, to say it. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice the response of the father. He likely hasn't even heard this simple request of his son. There's no hesitation from the father, just as the son has been rehearsing what he was going to say, the father was rehearsing what he was going to do. There was going to be a celebration. There was going to be a party. His son was lost and now has come home. Notice the word, words, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, that's exactly 
what this culture would have expected, that the son would shamefully leave, that, that the son that would shamefully leave with his share of the estate, turn his back on his father and his family, he would be dead to them. But what do you do with a dead person? That's a simple question. What do you do with a dead person? You bring him back alive. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. At this point, if you have any doubt, any doubt at all about who this father represents, uh, let me give you a hand. Jesus said that these parables give us insight, insight into the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Every kingdom has a king. So in these parables, we either see Jesus show up, or in this case, the Father, God the Father, is there. This parable is teaching us that God loves his children. He searches for the lost. He's fully willing to forgive, restore all that heaven, and all, the, all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents and returns home. So let's move on to this next section, and this is the reaction of the older son. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he, this is the older son, was angry and would not go on. Now, now while this is going on, while the father ran to meet the prodigal son, the prodigal son, the younger son, while the son was confessing and repenting and the father didn't even respond but decided to have this party, he told the servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring in his hand, sandals on his feet. If that wasn't enough, the father then says, go get the fatted calf and prepare it. While the father was telling the servants and everyone around what was going to, it was going to be a celebration, while that was going on, the older son was in the field. The older son, you see, had, had never left. He was still at his father's side. Like every day, he was hard at work in the field. And there was, he, was, he was even there when his younger brother finally came home. You know, he likely hadn't seen his brother at any time since he left. No more recently than his father had seen him. Unlike his father, however, he likely didn't give it any thought. Who knew where the young man may have gone? He hadn't given any thought as well whether he would ever return. It was unlikely. It was a shameful thing that this younger son had done, and it would only bring more shame to him and the family if he would return. He had received word of his exploits. We know that because he talks about the younger son spending time with harlots, and he's going to share some of that information with his father. However, drawn by the sound of the party, you know, isn't that like us as well? I, I can always hear the sound of a party. At one time when I heard of a, a sound of a party going on, I wondered why I wasn't invited and if I could still show up. And now when I hear a party going on, one of my neighbors or maybe somebody in my condo, uh, I just hope they keep it down so I can get some rest. Uh, that's, just, that's just life. So anyway, this, this older son hears the sound of the party and learns from a servant that his younger brother had come home. Note the very next verse. But he was angry and would not go in. You know, the anger had, had nothing to do with the party. 
had nothing to do with the fatted calf or the robe or the rings. Those are just trappings, the icing on the cake. The older son was not happy that his father so quickly forgave this huge trespass. He complained and felt it was an insult to his own obedience and his faithfulness. But here's the real story, the real issue here. The older son really didn't even know his father. In fact, while we don't want to read what isn't in the text, let me mention what is obvious by its omission. What's omitted is the father never went and looked for the older son. He never went looking for him to share the joy that the younger son had returned, had been found, had been restored, he had come home. The father and son, this father and older son have a, a strained relationship. And it's not the father's fault. The father has compassion and love. We know that based on what he did with the younger son. The father is willing to forgive and for almost anyone else, that which is unforgivable. He went looking for his lost son. He embraced him when he returned. He forgave the trespass, restored his fellowship with him. Let's go on, verse 28. Therefore the father came out and pleaded with him. Verse 29, so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandments, at, your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might marry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. The father pleads with the older son, but the older son will not hear it. He says, I never transgressed. You never gave. You know, that type of response is really so typical for those that feel that they are blameless. They never sin. Others sin, but no, not them. Therefore, Jesus had such a hard time with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They also felt they were blameless. They were the ones that people were to look at because they, had, they obeyed all of the commandments. Not only that, another couple thousand regulations just to make sure that they didn't even get close to violating one of the commandments, one of the laws. This is why Jesus had to tell him, this is out of Matthew, it says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus goes on and says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, Jesus says, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You know, how difficult it is for the self-righteous to feel the warm embrace of a loving God. You know, the father told the son, Son, you are with me always, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. But you see, that, that wasn't enough. The measuring stick that the older son was using didn't have any flexibility. It had no room for forgiveness. It had no hope for redemption. To be fair, to be completely fair, in one sense, the son was obedient. Yet while he was obedient, he was far from his father's heart. 
The parable was being told by Jesus because the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to Jesus. They were coming to Jesus to listen to him. They had ears to hear what the Savior was teaching. But the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. And they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of something that he openly acknowledged. He did receive sinners and even had dinner with them. As this was true of Jesus, it tells us that this parable is to illustrate that the Father has the capacity to forgive and to forget, to embrace and to restore, to open his arms and take back the son that was lost. And here's the thing, for the older son, it's just going to get worse. The older son will see that this younger brother with his rings on his fingers and the fine robe will look like he's the honored guest at the banquet. What he doesn't realize is the banquet is really in honor of the father. The father is celebrating that his son has returned. But the servants, the villagers, aren't going to be celebrating the prodigal son. The villagers will gather to celebrate a father that is loving and gracious and merciful and kind. Jesus is painting a picture, a picture of heaven where all of heaven celebrates over one sinner that repents. They aren't celebrating the sinner, they're celebrating the Father. There are many legalists who believe that they can earn their way to heaven. They refuse to believe that God takes great joy in justifying the ungodly, that God's joy is found in forgiving the sinner who is bankrupt and has nothing. The older son can't understand the love of the father has for his younger brother because the older son has really no love for the father he doesn't understand him I have no doubt that this father treated both sons with love and with respect he was a good good father but the one son rebelled but came back the other son never left but was lost let's pick up at the end of this parable and see what we can learn verse 31 my son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What a picture. What, what an impasse. We don't hear another word from the older son. It's the father that has the last word in this parable. There's a great feast going on. People are, are making merry. The father is joyful and has told the older son again that everything I have is yours. But that is not what the older son wants to hear. He's been so locked into his self-righteous attitude for so long, he can't accept the free grace and the mercy that his father is showing. This is again so much like the self-righteous, the legalist. They think they can be better at being God than God can himself. It's true. They are the ones who want to see retribution. They want to see penalty for sin. They want, they, they're the kind of people that can pick out the sinner in a crowd and offer, one, offer wonder when God is going to strike the sinner down. You know, all suffering, misfortune, and even poverty was typically attributed by the self-righteous as a penalty for sin. Remember Job's friends? They told Job that God is always rewarding the righteous and God will send calamities on the unrighteous, on the wicked people 
but Job disagreed. The apostles said roughly the same thing. And we really can't blame them because they were picking up exactly what the rabbi, rabbis had said. This was the prevailing culture at the time. When they saw the man born blind, they asked Jesus, who sinned? This man that was born blind or his parents? It had to be one of the two because the man is blind. The thought of, they thought that God was a, a scorekeeper. Not only that, he was also the ref of the empire that would quickly put you in the penalty box if you did anything wrong. For what this prodigal son, spending all of his inheritance, hang out with prostitutes, there was no coming back from that, from the perspective of the older son. No, no way. Let's look at verse 32 again, and we'll close on this note. We had to be merry and rejoice. The father says we had to. It's not like we had any option. For this brother of yours was dead and has been, has been brought to life. He was lost and he's now found. Why was there no choice? Why? Because this brings joy to God. In this way, God is glorified. This is why Jesus said in Luke chapter 15, 7, he says, I tell you the truth that in the same way there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So did you know that there's a banquet that is coming? There's, a, there's a, going to be a party in heaven at some time in the very near future and you can come to the party if you choose. But here's the thing, you can't go if you think that you deserve to go. Get that? You can't go if you think you deserve to go. Uh, that's something, isn't it? Uh, if you're like this self-righteous older brother and think you can just do the work, work your way to heaven and not bother to embrace your loving father, you've got it in reverse. It's the God of the universe that delights in you, that loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you, to forgive your sins, to give you hope, to restore you. If you fail to recognize your true spiritual condition, you can't come to the banquet. But if you repent, if you change your mind and understand that all have sinned and fallen short, you know, there is no response from this older son. The younger son, the prodigal son, he repented. He came back. Before he was even finished with his confession, the father was hugging him, loving on him, restoring him. All it takes is a little metanoia, a, a change of thought, a change of mind. All you need to do is take one step towards the father. He's looking for you. He's ready for you. He has a party planned, a banquet that you're invited to. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.